Welcome to the Fiber for Breakfast podcast, a series that discusses fiber as the critical infrastructure for today's growing broadband needs. Listen in as Gary Bolton, CEO and President of the Fiber Broadband Association, speaks with industry thought leaders and experts about connectivity issues and the impact on the remote workplace. I hope you enjoy today's discussion, which will start momentarily. And remember to subscribe and like this podcast on your favorite platform. Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Fiber Broadband Association's Fiber for Breakfast. We're now in our 25th episode of 2022. Before we kick off, I'd like to thank our sponsors of Fiber for Breakfast, including our gold sponsors, CHR Solutions, Millennium, and Plume, and our silver sponsor, Graybar. I hope everyone was able to join us last week in Nashville for Fiber Connect 2022 conference. It was absolutely amazing. We kicked off Sunday with four pre-conference workshops. I moderated the Fiber Playbook for the State Broadband Officers Workshop. My good buddy, JJ, he led the Broadband Starter Kit Workshop. And then we had my friend Ken Coe in the Broadband Forum leading our Future of Fiber Workshop. And then George, John George, our chair of our technology committee, led our Fiber 101 Workshop. You know, on sun, our Sunday opening reception was jam-packed. And we officially kicked off our conference last Monday morning to a record crowd of over 3,000 people. Leading off, we had Andy Burke from NTI, who I like to call the $42 billion man, and then Senator Haggerty. We had over 200 speakers that covered over 170 sessions. And some of the key highlights for me uh, were the Facebook keynote connecting the Metasphere, or excuse me, the Metaverse, and the TiVo uh, keynote, Evolving customer, customer Preference for Video Entertainment. Of course, I loved hearing my good friend, Dr. Chris Alley's keynote on the Last Mile Mindset. You know, Chris uh, wrote that book, Farm Fresh Broadband, which I love. Um, anyway, great, great guy. It was great to see him last week. The exhibit floor was sold out with wall-to-wall energy. There were some amazing demos and announcements. But what really stood out to me was the Nokia proof of concept demo with a hundred gig pond. That's a hundred gig pond. And it was working. You know, I was able to play with it, pull out the fibers, you know, bend them, create attenuation. You know, um, it all worked. It was real um, and really exciting. Today's Fiber for Breakfast session, we're going to be discussing in more detail fiber connecting the dots, the post show recap with two of the industry's leading analysts. Last week at Fiber for Breakfast, we held a roundtable discussion on the power of fiber. Power utilities build fiber for the greater good with the chair of the Fiber Broadband Association's Power Utility Roundtable, Pete Hopswell from Holland Board of Public Works, along with the Fiber Broadband Association's past chair, Katie Espeth of EPB in Chattanooga, and George Segal from Alabama Power. And today's session, we're going to be doing a roundtable discussion on fiber connecting the dots, the post-show recap, with two of our industry's leading analysts, Julie Kunstler and Jamie Lindemann from research firm Omnia. Julie Kunstler is the chief analyst within um, Omnia's broadband access intelligence service. Julie has several decades of experience in communications components, equipment, and software industry. She's responsible for the market analysis of wireline and wireless broadband access technologies and networks, focusing on developing technologies such as NextGen PON. And prior to joining Omnia, 
Julie served as the Vice President of Business Development for Technovis, focusing on FTTX deployments in Asia-Pac, OEM agreements with major equipment vendors, corporate strategy, analyst relations, business planning, and fundraising. Jamie Lenderman is a Principal Analyst and Research Manager at Omnia, covering the Broadband Access Intelligence Service. Jamie provides insight to key audiences and ecosystem players. Reports include quarterly market share trackers, forecasts, next-gen technology analysis, and business strategy, and specializing in consulting projects. Jamie's research area includes fiber, copper, cable, and fixed wireless access technology. She has worked in the telecommunications industry for over seven years, and prior to joining OVM, now Omnia, in 2017, Jamie was a broadband infrastructure and customer premise equipment analyst at IHS Marquee. Well, welcome, Julie and Jamie. And for our audience, please type in your questions as we go, and we'll work them into the Q&A. With that, I'd like to turn it over to Julie and Jamie. You got to have your mute there. Yep, sorry. Thanks so much, Gary, for the kind introduction. Um, good morning, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this opportunity to connect the dots here about Fiber Connect 2022. Uh, we have some major takeaways that we'd like to discuss today, um, and we'd love to hear any of your questions, um, again, as Gary mentioned, uh, with, the, with the toolbar. Um, next slide, please. And so sort of just going, going through sort of a storyboard here, uh, we really one major takeaway that we saw is broadband is not just about universal connectivity but it's really a national competitive advantage there's personal community as well as economic benefits that come about from it and we really saw that through um, the conglomerate of local uh, local um, municipalities, utilities, uh, the idea that it's very important for your community from not just a personal level, but as well as the economic benefits that come from it as well. Additionally, we, we saw that the roadblock has always been the last mile. The cost to connect has increasingly come down over the last few years, but this generally applies to those who are easy to reach. The most rural and hard to reach generally costs exorbitantly more to connect at the last mile. And it's always been hard for operators to make that business case for building out some of those areas. And what's great is this external investment, which is finally here, uh, is from public funds as well as private equity, is really closing the financial gap in some of these areas and making it possible to connect the under and unconnected. But what's also important as they as we all move to close the last mile is that execution strategy is key. The funds that are coming down are important because they don't necessarily support future OPEX. They're really a one-time opportunity to build out these networks. And it's extremely important for operators to develop a strategy where they get it right the first time. Um, in our research, we tend to see OLT rollouts and upgrades happening before ONT, ONU rollouts. Um, and so it's, it's extremely important to have a strategy, key partnerships that are really going to help get it right the first time. But of course, you know, as, as was a major topic, was that bottlenecks may happen. Um, we, we saw the conversations around supply chain issues, not just for chipsets, but even down to nuts and bolts uh, that continue to be on back order. 
Um, and there continues to be delays that are also showing in our market share reports. Uh, we anticipate that some of these shortages may start to alleviate um, in the next few quarters and early next year, uh, but there is a potential chance that some of these supply chains uh, issues will continue. And with regards to labor, it's not necessarily that there are labor shortages, but it's if labor is available for the timing of an operator's project. Um, this is something that we saw. Um, timelines were extremely important in making sure everything was lined up so those dominoes fell over uh, simultaneously. And in addition, one other topic that we, we saw a large amount of discussion was with regards to mapping. And this was an interesting topic uh, because it really could have reverberating effects if the maps are not accurate. But really the, the biggest takeaway is that this is long-term um, from network design to customer premise deployment uh, and really every step in between, the stage is set for years of growth. Um, the North American market um, it is expected to grow significantly through 2027, as we show in our report. Um, we expect vendor equipment revenues to be over 20 billion between 2022 and 2027. And, and that's just a slice of the ecosystem vendors. Uh, we've already seen 10 gig pond move into commercialized rollouts in the US and we are anticipating 25 gig pond set for commercial rollout in the next few quarters. We believe that 50 gig pond will come online um, it, for North America consumption in the next couple years. And as we saw, as Gary mentioned, and as we saw at Fiber Connect um, with Nokia's proof of concept, 100 gig pawn is already in the works. And, and as Gary mentioned, they, uh, they also won the POC award for most in, in, innovative. Um, and, you know, and real one final thought here is something that's really awesome to see to use sort of sort of an informal term is that the pawn equipment vendor ecosystem is growing. And this is really fantastic to see from an operator standpoint. There are now a variety of solutions that can fit individual operator strategy. And as we, as we saw at the conference, there's a, a wide breadth of types of operators that exist and are emerging um, out of this funding and out of this ability that we have now to close the digital divide. And with that, I turn it over to Julie to talk a little bit about cable strategy that we saw at the show. Yeah, thanks, Jamie. So I call this the cable conundrum because for many cable co's, the strategy is really adding pawn. And, and one of the key questions is, are they moving fast enough? But let's provide some context here first. That more than 85 million households in North America use cable technologies for their broadband services today. So it absolutely dominates broadband subscribers. And this is unique to North America and very unique compared to other regions, other countries around the world. And we have to keep that in mind. And cable operators offer more than just naked broadband, including smart home services. And they continue to do bandwidth upgrades based upon cable plant type solutions. So it's not so simple for them, you know, how and where should they add PON? It's not a question of, for most cable operators of completely going to PON or to fi fiber-based broadband. 
It's where they should add it. Which technologies should they use for doing it? And how can they preserve existing and near-term investments? And I was led the cable and fiber panel last week, and there were a lot of discussions about how do you add, how do you augment uh, cable coax network? You know, HFC, we know that there is a lot of fiber in their networks. That's what the F and HFC stands for. But how do, you, how do they do it? And if you talk to the cable operators from very, very small to very large, there's different ways of adding PON or different strategies around adding PON. You know, one is an extension to their existing footprint. We certainly know that some of the cable operators are planning on getting winning federal dollars to help expand and improve broadband services just outside their um, existing footprint. Some have plans to go into new areas. Some have selective overbuild. And I say selective because um, the very few of the larger, it's, it's common among the smaller operators, cable operators, to think about complete overbuilds of fiber. But certainly the larger ones are thinking about it in terms of where they're facing competition from fiber to the home. Uh, operators just thinking about it in terms of a selective overbuild. And finally, what do they do about rural areas? What was great to see last week is that a number of the vendors, the PON equipment vendors, who are focusing on helping cable operators add PON were there, were very active on the trade show floor and on panels. Because I think we all know, and everyone would admit, um, whether public or not, that cable operators are adding PON fiber-based PON technologies to their networks, it's really a question of how much and 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 how and, and where. And it was great to see that cable operators today have more, are facing a variety of, of options, a variety of solutions as they think about adding PON, whether it's to their digital nodes, whether it's all the way back at the head end, just how to do it. Um, but I still call it the conundrum because they, they will be facing increased competition from um, utility utilities that get into fiber to the home or that add to their fiber to the home strategies, alternative network operators, municipalities, and large to small telcos, whether it's AT&T or whether it's some very much smaller telcos um, who are moving to fiber very quickly. So I found it fascinating to see the number of cable operators last week, the number of cable equipment vendors also were, were, were there. Um, so my key, one of my key takeaways was how much cable operators are now paying attention to fiber to the home initiatives, to the federal funding, and what they need to do to, uh, to improve their competitive positioning. Uh, my mute button here. Well, thanks, Julie and Jamie. Um, yeah, so the, you know, if I look at kind of um, last year versus this year, so last year, you know, we made a, a hard focus on um, making sure that um, rural electric co-ops, you know, so we saw the utility market really starting to make a strong uh, movement into, you know, fiber to the home and, and broadband in general. And so we, you know, I, I'd say that was our fastest growing segment and where we started seeing a whole lot of utility operators. And this year, we were actually co-located with um, APPA, the American Public Power Association. And so, you know, the utilities and, you know, of course, last week's Fiber for Breakfast was the utility roundtable. So we were seeing that all the utility guys are in there and they 
they're figuring out, you know, if they're a big utility, they might just focus on, you know, leasing dark fiber or middle mile. And if it's a rural uh, operator, you know, um, electric co-op, then they're, you know, typically looking more towards um, uh, allowing their electric members now to have broadband services and serving those communities. The other thing we saw last year was public-private partnerships. So we saw a lot of, you know, big turn by the incumbents of rather than kind of telling, you know, the uh, rural and left behind areas to, you know, we'll get to you, you know, in a decade or so to, hey, how can we work with you? And then, and so we saw a big shift. And so this year, you know, we did put a big focus on um, making sure that cable operators were uh, very welcome there. And I was super pleased to see the number of cable operators because, you know, it's not a, I always think of it as uh, change appears incremental until it's too late. And so while, you know, cable has been enjoying a huge monopoly, um, <laughs> the thundering hooves of fiber is coming to neighborhoods around the world and certainly around the country. And so, um, you know, certainly being able to um, be in position to, um, you know, upgrade their networks in a way that uh, makes sense and able to uh, make sure that everybody's connected with fiber. So we did see, you know, as Jamie said, a lot of um, faster technology. You know, we're while on Capitol Hill likes talking about, you know, 25.3 and 100 by 20. Um, what everybody at our event liked talking about was 25 gig pond, 50 gig pond, 100 gig pond. So with all these applications, um, you know, well, what are the applications for these technologies? You know, so you, Jamie, I think you said that we're going to be moving. Um, we we're already at 10 gig pond. Now we're moving to 25. Um, so when do people need to put this in and what are the applications and are we really going to have residential pond for 100 gig pond? I mean, what, what is the future for that? Um, I think it's really interesting um, that, you know, we're we're really getting up in, in capabilities for technology. Uh, what we're seeing at the moment with 25 gig pond is that uh, in the operators across the world that have trialed and, and are moving towards commercial rollouts of 25 gig, gig pond is that for the most part, they're using this technology for non-residential use cases, um, as well as inter, uh, such as enterprise, um, as well as the idea that you can use 25 gig uh, for a mobile backhaul. Um, it's not necessarily on the front hall part. Um, that, may, that may need to come as we move forward with 50 gig pond. Um, however, those are just a couple of the use cases that we're seeing for 25 gig. It's not necessarily at this moment being used for residential, but it, it certainly could be if an operator had had the business case for that. So, I mean, today, when you think about work from home or even school from home or anything from home, it really, the enterprise network does now extend into the residential environment. So is that a, a driver and are there certain... Um, QoS or different features and functionalities that we need to see in the networks going forward? Well, PON is being used by many operators for business services with SLAs. So it, it, that issue really depends more on an operator mentality and business case than on the technology. So you can do SLAs on PON, you can do SLAs on point-to-point -point active ethernet. What, we, what we've seen is that some very traditional type operators, not all, so I wanna be really careful here, but some of them say, well, we wanna to continue to use point-to-point -point for business services because 
we can charge more money for it. And others say, let's try to use, put as much traffic as possible over a fiber-based pond network. It's a lot cheaper. You're sharing fiber, you're sharing optics, there's security built in, lots of encryption. Let's just do it that way. So it depends a lot on the on, on the operator and where they're coming from and their, how they look at things. But part of why we've seen such a swing towards XGS PON, 10 gig PON, is exactly what you said, Gary, because of the work from home, the study from home. With 10 gig symmetrical on, on the network side and then being able to support one gig symmetrical at home and even higher on 10 gig, it really takes care of a lot of the work at home, study at home uh, requirements for broadband. You know, you, you make sure that you add, it's not just a question of bandwidth, right? You wanna add various capabilities around latency and jitter, depending upon what, what else is required from those applications that people are using at home. But this is part of why we've seen such a huge uptake of, of Tenji Pan to the point where Many of the new builds, um, whether it's a, tr a new type, a new operator or an existing operator, but that's going into a new area, they're going straight to Tenji. They're going either to, primarily to XGS PON. Some cable operators choose Tenji EPON because of certain capabilities um, or certain so software, something called DPOE, DOCSIS provisioning of EPON that's available and has been standardized by, by um, with, with work between IEEE and, and cable labs. But definitely that's what's spurring the, the XGS. And in fact, in North America, over the last couple of quarters, 10G PON on the network side has dominated shipments. And what we're even seeing on this on the customer premise side is that op, many operators are choosing to use 10G on the ONTO and U side, CPE side. Why is that? Because they may not offer 10 gig or anywhere close to that to the residential subscriber today, it may be two gig, five gig for heavy, heavy users, but they don't wanna to have to do a truck roll in the future. I mean, part of the idea of PON is that you build it once, right? And as Jamie said, if you build it right, you, you, you have that huge CapEx, then you experience much lower OpEx. It's passive, which has a lot of advantages to it. Um, Frankly, it's one of the reasons why utilities can do it because it's passive, it doesn't have any interference. But you build it once, you put with the subscriber, you put in subscriber equipment that will last for a very long time and you don't have to touch it again. And this is really important because as, as Jamie said, the federal funds don't cover operating expenses, they only cover CapEx. So the operators that are thinking this through long-term, five-year business plan, 10, 15, 20, know that there's advantages to fiber and particularly to passive fiber, which is uh, PON. So I think, Jamie, you said that um, 25 gig PON is going to start to roll out in the next couple quarters. Is this going to be, I mean, are you forecasting, is this going to be meaningful in the next year or two? Or is this more of a, I mean, where are we? Is this, you know, science experience? I mean, is this real and this commercial? No, this is yeah, yeah. Real. go ahead, Julie. Yeah, it's yeah, real. Yeah, it's it, it, it's real, but it's small. The the quantities are small compared to XGS PON, um, which makes a lot of sense because most operators, you know, you look at the many many operators don't need 25 gig PON capabilities right now. Many 
for many small, medium-sized businesses, XGS PON is great. Um, and it can handle, XGS PON can handle a certain amount of, of small cell backhaul. So if I look at, if we look at who's, who we know have plans, you know, under NDA, unfortunately, but who have plans for 25 gig, it's to be able to offer 10 gig, 15 gig, 20 gig services to businesses. And it's also those who have the opportunity to either wholesale small cell transport to others or to do it themselves and save money using reusing or you know i'll call it reusing the pond network pond infrastructure for that but it's real but it's gonna it's small just like 50g you know again let's focus on north america put china on the side 50g when it comes and we'll probably begin to see some commercial appointments late next year will also be small in the beginning because it's very it's it's, it's somewhat unique um, use cases, but to me, and I think to the ecosystem, what's really important is that we see the path for future generations of PON so that once you build that infrastructure, the optical distribution network, it's safe. I mean, what was so important about the demonstrations, the POCs that, that we saw and that won all of them, not just the ones that won the awards, is that it's enabling smart homes, smart communities. Um, it's enabling tremendous improvement, economic improvement, without having to constantly replace infrastructure. Now, the, the Facebook keynote, or Meta keynote, as you call it, um, they said, hey, um, it's great we have all these gigabit networks. I think, J Jamie, you said 88% of service providers in the US are offering a gigabit under 100 bucks. Um, but the long pole is latency and that latency is king, and uh, the networks have to be designed to have low latency for really to take advantage of the, the, metas, the metaverse. Is what are, what are your thoughts? Pond at the edge, and, and we're seeing this, you know, there, one of the advantages of Pond technology is that you can put it at the edge, which already lowers latency, and, and we're, seeing, we're seeing operators adopt that approach. So in addition to speed, um, what are the other things that operators need to think about? I, I really think it continues to be value-added services. Um, Julie, Julie touched on it. It's those low latency packages. I, I know we see them for operators as, uh, as, as geared towards gamers, um, but I think it has a lot of other use cases than that. And then in addition, um, the idea as, and we touched upon this as well, the idea that to offer an SLA service to the home, um, enterprise-like service to the home for those who are permanently working from home. Those are just a couple examples of value-added services that we continue to see over just high speed to the home. But of course, it does take high speed to the home in order to make the low latency and, and an enterprise-like service worthwhile. Well, listen, um, we're out of time, but um, I really appreciate you know, Julie and Jamie. Thank you guys for coming to the show Thanks. last week. Um, Amazingly, we had 55 pricing analysts there, so um, evidently fiber is in vogue, and uh, we're glad that that's the case. So we appreciate all your research and for sharing your insights and expertise with our audience today. Um, so thanks, our audience, for thanks for joining us again today, and I look forward to getting back together next Wednesday, where we're going to be discussing changing the fate of rural Missouri with fiber broadband an electric co-op with more broadband subscribers than electric members with Darren Farnan, the general manager of United Fiber. 
You're not going to want to miss that. And we'll see you guys next Wednesday.